Here's the thing. I know that this could have the tendency of the appearance of like going like weirdo church type stuff. And I, I promise you, if you've been a part of East Lake or, or you got an invitation from a friend or like, this is kind of different. It is different. And, and um, it, but, but here's the deal. When you read the New Testament and you read about Jesus and what he did and some of the teachings, which we can identify with, and then all the, like the miracles, like what do you do with those? How do you just like, do you skip past them? A lot of times some people will come up with naturalistic reasons why that took place. Well, the reason it appeared like he was walking on the water because there was a sandbar that went out in the Sea of, in the sea of Galilee. Yeah, sandbar in the Sea of Galilee. And the reason that it appeared that there was food that kind of, you know, all the, how do you wrestle with, the, with, with what you see? And, and if you're like anti-supernatural, like for you, the world works the way that it works always. And, 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 and that, I get it. I understand I'm probably a, a lot the same way uh, in that way. And then you come into church and be like, you just got to believe and you got to have faith and you got to have this. And, and uh, it just doesn't sometimes jive and coincide with it. And you've, and you've wrestled with it. And that's been something that's kept you out of church and kept you out of uh, sort of organized religion for a very long time. I'm glad that you're here. I hope that that throughout this conversation um, that you will c- come to kind of see a new perspective on this kind of thing. And um, uh, since it is a series, a lot of times in, in the very first part of a series, we kind of stir a lot of questions up that we don't really have answers to because I want you, I want to keep you coming back. And so if you walk out of here going, he didn't really resolve anything for me, um, that's, that's good. Hopefully I piqued some interest and maybe... Uh, created some sort of a, a, a thing in you that says, I got to kind of figure this thing out. I got to wrestle with this. I kind of owe it to myself to wrestle with what, how do I reconcile? If I come from a faith background, how do I reconcile what I see uh, about miracles with the faith that I have? And if I don't come from a church background, um, like wh- where, where does kind of all this fit in and where, where do I perceive kind of the miraculous side of things uh, with this? And in order to kick this thing off, I, I really do want to talk about the difference between uh, some of the two most understood, uh, misunderstood, excuse me, misunderstood words when it comes to modern day religion, which is this idea of faith and belief, faith and believing. Uh, because uh, you probably came from a church tradition, if you came from a church tradition where uh, somebody like me in a position like mine said something, well, you just got to have more faith. You just got to, which we interpret as I got to try harder. Like I, I'm struggling with this. I'm, I'm struggling to see how my life fits in with this and I'm just not sure. And the, the response was like this just big, broad paintbrush of more faith, more faith, try harder, believe more, even though there's no be- evidence to kind of go off of. And it's interesting because that only works in the area within the four walls of the church. It's weird because how we operate normally when we have, when we believe in something or have faith in something, we believe something is true uh, because of the evidence, one of two reasons. One, either because of the evidence that's presented to us, like we just, we know through experience that this is how life works or this is how things kind of work in life, um, or uh, just based on uh, what we hear about or what we can read about in books uh, from sources that we trust. And which brings us to the second point, we believe based on the confidence in the person delivering their information. We either know it by ourselves or there's a lot of things you believe about the way that uh, science works, not that you've ever experimented with, you know, neuroscience or biologic, you know, but whatever, but you just trust people who have lots of letters after their names to be like, you're smarter than me, you know more than me. In areas where I have a certain data set and then you come with a different data set and I perceive you to have more authority on this thing than me, then I defer to you. I change what I believe based on new information, based on the person who uh, gives it to me. So, but it's all based on kind of an evidence. And let me give you a real quick example of this playing out. My wife and I had a chance this uh, last spring to go over to Virginia Beach area. We met up with a bunch of pastors and we took an extra day to kind of explore the area because we were really close to the first settlement in America, Jamestown, the original settlement. Uh, and then I, when we got there, it was we found out it's a little bit of a drive there and there's not much there to see. In fact, it's kind of like one of those uh, place like the website just had a bunch of people dressed up in colonial stuff and they're like, well, you can come beat anvils with us and we'll charge you 50 bucks for parking. And we're like, eh, it's cool to be like around Jamestown. That's enough for us, right? 
So we went instead to uh, First Landing Beach State Park, where the ships first landed on their way. And it wasn't, you know, it's not Columbus. This is much later than that, 1607. But this is where they came over with with the point of we are going to establish something and actually stay here as opposed to just come over and trade. And so uh, we went to the state park and we walked in and it's got this building and it's not very big and there wasn't very many people around, but we walked in and you could tell it was like a mini museum highlighting kind of the whole story. And there was these pictures of these three ships. And I immediately walked in and started talking uh, with Kylie about this. And we, there was, it wasn't very clear what we were looking at and reading. It wasn't that great of a museum. Anyways, I'm saving you from spending the money to go there. But um, we were reading and we're trying to figure out which ships they were. And Kylie goes, do you remember which ship these were? And I'm trying to recollect my memories from like, I don't know, grade school, maybe middle school, um, about what ships were part of the first landing thing. And I said, I think that's the Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria, and I can't remember which one is which. And if you're like an American history buff, you're like, oh, Brent, you're so terrible. Because that those were Columbus's ships. That's not, that wasn't first landing, all right? Uh, and so I am saying this out loud, talking with her. I think it's the Nina, Pinta, the Santa Maria. And very quickly, I hear footsteps behind me of somebody in the whole Ranger outfit. And they're like, actually... If you want to be technically correct and historically correct, that's not correct. It's the Susan Constance, the Godspeed, and the, anybody? No, Mayflower. No, that's not true. Uh, that was up north. It was uh, the Discovery. See, see, and you guys think I'm an idiot for not knowing things, right? <laughs> see, I knew, I knew I'd put this out there and they'd be like, ah, Brent, need a pinch of Santa Maria. That's clearly Columbus. What are you doing, right? But you can't name the third one either. So we're on the same boat. But in that moment, my data set of what I believe transpired, I believe that they came, and I, you know, if you would have put me down to it, I wouldn't have held it in, I wouldn't have held it in firm belief because I, I, I wasn't there. I didn't experience it. And then as soon as my data set met somebody whose authority I would defer to, my belief system changed into they have a name tag. They work here, right? I'm a Pacific Northwesterner. I know nothing about East Coast stuff. You get you whatever. Yes, I believe what you have to say about that. That's kind of how we operate uh, in life is uh, I, I, I believed this is what it was and then I came into much better evidence and then I switched my belief into it. Now, it's interesting because Inside the walls of the church, belief and faith take on a different format from that. It translates more into this idea of hoping something is true. I hope that somebody you know, comes through. If you've ever had an appointment with somebody at a coffee shop and you've gone in and you sat there and you're supposed to meet at 10 and you show up at like 9.50 because you're like cool like that, uh, and then 10 rolls around, it's 10.05 and they're still not there and, they're, and, and you, you did the whole... You know, you walk in and be like, I'm meeting somebody. I'll wait to order until they get here. It's like a restaurant or whatever. And it's awkward because the waiter keeps coming over like, did you really have somebody coming? Are you like, it's lonely? Is this a friend, you know, like socially awkward thing or whatever? And you're like, no, I'm pretty sure they're coming. Pretty sure they're coming. They said they would come. We live with this hope that somebody is going to come through and actually show up and meet us for this meeting that we're supposed to be at. We have faith, I have faith, that when you say you're gonna be there at 10, that you're gonna be there at 10 or whatever, right? That's the kind of, that, that operates as, as a sense of, we call that hope. And yet inside the walls of church, we kind of translate that as, well, that's just you believing. Because you, you would say, you'd point to things and be like, I don't know if I believe this. I don't know if I have faith enough to be able to have this. And somebody would say, you gotta have, you gotta more faith than that. You gotta believe, you gotta try a little harder. It's like a will to something. We don't call it hope because hope sounds too cheap. We like a little bit more confidence in it. We gotta have more faith. You gotta try a little bit harder in this way. And I think that if that has been ever 
preached to you, if that has been ever taught to you, is this is how we believe, this is how you have faith in something, that that would be something that would not jive with the earliest Christian writers, that would not jive with Jesus' disciples, I think, is we're gonna look in the book of John, I think John especially would be like, that's not at all, if, if that's what you wanna do, that's fine, but that's not at all how I believed. It, I, didn't, I wasn't qualified to write a gospel about the, you know, the person and the teaching of Jesus because I tried harder than most people because I believed in stuff that weren't there. I, I hoped my way to this. He's like, that's foreign to me. I don't understand. And perhaps you come from some environment, you're not religious, uh, and maybe you grew up in a, in a home where ch- church is what you did for a while, and you kind of believe, but you believe to the point uh, that, that that was it. And, and nobody ever talked you into it, and so it was really easy to talk you out of it right? You went to a college class one time, somebody challenged your belief systems, uh, and they talked you out of it because you were never talked into it. Frank Turek is an author who writes this. The reason so many people are easily talked out of Christianity is because they were never talked into it in the first place. You showed up at a college class, you read a book by Bart Ehrman, Christopher Hitchin, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris or something, and you're like, oh, and you're ch- you, they challenge, they appeal against your belief system that relies on hope, I hope that this is true. I hope that something exists out there. And they presented evidence contrary to this and then it fell into the category of, well, I'm gonna believe something. So then you got talked out of something you never got talked into in the first place or a lecture or whatever. And I, my, my goal of this series is to present a picture of a gospel writer named John who would say, that's not how it worked for me. I didn't follow Jesus because of hope or because of faith or because I believed something that wasn't there and I just believed my way into it. That sounds like just a churched up version of hope. Example of this came out very, very clear for me and, and a confirmation that this series was something that I wanted to talk about. A couple of weeks ago, I got an email. We've had a conversation back and forth with somebody in the church and, and she's been writing me about, hey, if this is like awkward, then like imagine that I didn't send this, right? But I have, su- I have like serious doubts in my faith. I've enjoyed coming to the East Lake. I, I love bringing my kids there, all that kind of stuff. Um, but like I'm I'm like on this personal journey where I'm just not sure about what I believe. And she asked this question, do you ever even question, do you ever question your faith? Which is kind of scary to ask like your pastor. Um, So like, do you believe the stuff that you're talking about? Or is this like a big show, like whatever? Do you ever wonder if faith is just something we want to believe in because death is scary and we don't want to believe uh, we're just gone when we die? Um, Which is a very valid question. Do we believe in Christianity because it's the mental crutch that we need? I mean, this has the, been the whole thing from, you know, Karl Marx from throughout, the, throughout history of, of all these anti-voices about organized religion. Religion is the opiate of the people. It's a crutch that everybody needs that, 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 that does this. Is it when it relies on simply hope, then that's a valid critique and criticism of this. And my answer to that is um, I just don't, I think that we're starting off on the wrong premise. I think we need to, talk about the, and distinguish the difference between believing in something, between having faith of something and hoping in something. And so we're going to look at John's kind of testimony, John's story about it, and figure this thing out over the next couple of weeks. Um, John is the fourth gospel of uh, the, the successive gospels in the New Testament. So the New Testament starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Most of them disciples, followers of Jesus. Some of them getting their, their, uh, their uh, information from disciples. Either way, firsthand approaches of who Jesus was and what he did during his time on this planet. John would be the last one to write his gospel. Pretty, pretty commonly held belief that um, the other three were already, existence, already in existence and already in circulation. And these three, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were called the synoptic 
gospels, basically they line up more in line with each other in terms of timelines and, and events and historicity of details than John's. John's is a little bit more of an eclectic approach. Um, he wrote his much, much later. And so he had a chance to kind of reflect on this. And he kind of mixes the timelines around a bit because I think he's telling a story. I think he's trying to communicate something as we'll see in just a minute. And I, I love it, by the way. I don't want to denigrate the book of John. I think it's probably the best book to start. Anytime somebody comes up to me and says, I'm interested in like getting into the whole Bible thing again. I feel like I need to, I want to read the Bible. I would say start with John. It's very readable. It's very personable. It has a very high view of who Christ was. Uh, and, and, and it's pretty unique in that way. Um, he probably wrote it uh, in his old age. Um, he, he, it feels like the church history says that he was kind of a pastor of a church and in his old age, while he was right before he died, people came to him and basically were like, we don't want to let these stories die with you. Please tell us these things so we can write them down to keep them for all of history. Uh, and so that kind of comes out with his version of the story. And he gives us a thesis statement, but he doesn't do it at the very beginning of the book, which is what you and I would do in high school papers and college papers. Like when you're about to write something, you start off with some sort of an introduction. And after the introduction, here's the thesis. Here's why, here's essentially what I believe. And then I'll supplement with reasons why I do this. His story flips this a little bit, writes more like a novel in that I'm going to give you all of the stuff and then I'll tell you why I wrote this. But for the sake of our time together, I'm going to lead with this thesis statement, even though it's in chapter 20, and then we're going to come back to chapter two. All right. So here's why he says, I wrote this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, of which John would say, I was one of those people who got to see this, many of which are not recorded in this book. In other words, we saw so many different things. I, I picked and chose some of them, but by no, means is, by no means is this a comprehensive, detailed account of everything that I ever saw. And then he goes on and says, but these are written. The reason I selected these, I selected these ones specifically so that you may believe. Here's the purpose of why I wrote this. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I want to write these because I think when you believe these types of things, it changes the way that you live your life. And he's writing out of personal experience. This is how it worked for me. Perhaps this is how it could work for you. You've, you've read stuff like this. You've read this from people who are honest and humble enough in their writings to be like, I don't know if this is prescriptive to everybody, but I'm telling you, this is my experience with weight loss. This is my experience with relationships, with marriage, with drug addiction recovery, with all this kind of stuff. This is my story. Perhaps it might help you in some way, shape, or form. I wrote these things down. I collected these stories so that you may see this and have something to base your belief off of so you can get away from this random hope stuff and onto something a little bit more firm in this way. So he collects what he says, a, a sequence of signs, a sequence of miracles or whatever. And again, um, uh, when, when we talk about miracles, I, I wanna make sure that you understand that Jesus' miracles, according to John, weren't random acts of kindness and he's not just showing off. These were signs that pointed to something, that pointed to his identity, as I'm going to show you today, and we're going to look at the rest of the series, it wasn't a matter of Jesus being, look what I can do, look what I can do. For my next magic trick, I would like to perform this. It was always about who he was. And when John records this, it's not to impress you. 
but to point you towards Jesus. These miracles had a specific purpose. His goal was not to become enamored with the miraculous, but to become enamored with the person that the miraculous pointed towards. He would say this, listen, I'm gonna tell you about a time that Jesus walked on water. I'm gonna tell you about a time that all of these things took place. And by the way, I'm not telling you this to like, show you all of the different opportunities that we have to be like this really cool, like traveling circus where people could come and get things healed and get things whatever. I'm telling you this because I'm trying to point you towards the miraculous person that it points to. More on that uh, in a little bit. So uh, the first sign, the first miracle, the first thing that points to who Jesus was for us, uh, I titled today's talk, The One Where Jesus Makes a Beer Run, um, because it has to do with the wedding in Cana where he turns water into wine. Uh, and if I said water into wine, that doesn't make, you know, that's, that's fine. But like Jesus making a beer run, like I like that. And it makes the wrong people, you know, mad at me and the right people happy. So anyways, that's why I, I, I picked that title. So I know it's not beer, whatever, it doesn't matter. Verse one of chapter two. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Uh, Jesus' mother was there. Um, we, we know that, um, uh, that, that, uh, that she's there in the presence with Jesus and his disciples. But here's what we also know, that she has some sort of a role in this. It was like we're attenders, but like she seems to be on the party planning committee to some degree because she has some observations and some thoughts and some conviction about making the party go smoothly. Uh, Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding, which is perhaps why we get this story from John is because he himself was there and he recalls this event. Verse three, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more Wine. Have you ever been to a party where they run out of something? Have you ever been to a wedding where the like they're just they run out of either food or wine, and you know this is going to affect the dance floor later on. This is going to people are not going to be able to dance the way that they want to dance. Like it's going to be weird when princes you know dance like it's 1999 comes on and the wine's been gone for an hour. This would be unquestionably embarrassing for everyone involved uh, in this. Um, this would be a, 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 a picture for them of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we didn't plan. I, th- I told you to buy this much and how much did you buy? I, I, you know, whatever. Anyways, there's stuff going on. She makes a comment to Jesus. Now there's a couple of ways you can take this comment. Um, I, I came up with three, there might be more, but three basic ways that you could take this. Number one, she's spreading gossip about the family, right? She's like, I heard they're out of wine. <laughs> I mean, I heard things were tight lately, but my gosh, it's a wedding after all. I don't think that that's what was taking place, but you could. Um, option two is sort of a matter of fact, like, oh, they're out of wine. And like, I'll just resort to water or whatever. I, like, that could be it too. But I like option three, which is she's being strategic in what she says. You know people in your life who are strategic about what they say. They may, be, uh, they may use very few words or a lot of words, but when they say something, you can tell this is not like off the cuff. They're very strategic. They, you, you get it later. You don't understand in the moment, but later on, you're like, they thought through what they said. Like they're being very strategic uh, in this way. It feels like maybe she says this audibly in the presence of her son, Jesus, because he's done something about things like this before. And I, I, I oftentimes wonder what it would be like to raise somebody who was divinely appointed as, or divinely the son of God. Like, I, it's weird. I, I, uh, I, I'm raising four kids. None of them are Jesus uh, or divine. In fact, one of them, I'm not even sure he's a Christian yet at this point. It's... <laughs> He's very, very sinful, Um, uh, and he's almost two, so there's that, but 
I, I wonder what it would be like. And I'm not saying I don't love him. I love him very much. He just, yeah. Anyways, um, I wonder what it'd be like to have somebody like this. And I, I really do think that at some point, She's dropping these hints because Jesus is probably taking care of some of this stuff before, right? She's gone to the fridge, opened it up, and been like, oh, we're out of milk. Jesus, crazy. <laughs> Who would want to run to milk, go get milk at Yolks? They'd put it in the very back. It takes time to get out of the car. Listen, I'm just going to turn around for a second. I'm going to close the fridge. And I know they don't have a fridge and there was no Yolks. Just play along with me, okay? We're imagining stuff here. I imagine that there had been some things along the way that Jesus had taken care of in a private setting, this is for sure the first publicly recorded uh, miracle that he's taking place. But if you, you know, if you're married, you've probably seen some things that you're just like, I get it. He's he's special in in a certain way, right? Here's Jesus's response to his mother's request, woman. Now, gentlemen, I cannot highly recommend. I I can highly recommend not saying this, not doing this. Do not follow his lead in this way. This is not a great lead, okay? This is very, uh, it's not great. But it also is not great in terms of our English translation of what was taking place in the Greek, all right? He's basically saying, he's he's caught in this predicament like we've all been. If you're, you're, uh, uh, you know, like beyond 25, and you're in public, and your mom says something to you, it's really awkward to be like, mom, right? You don't want to say that. And so I used to always say, Gail, right? That's her, my mom's first name. And she'd be like, you do not refer to me by my first name, right? It's mom, it's mother, it's whatever you want. Um, so it's interesting. Like, it is that fun dynamic where, like, there, it's, it's a mother and her aged son who has, by the way, he's a rabbi and has disciples now. And it would be awkward for him to be like, mom, don't involve me in this. So he says, uh, woman, uh, which basically translate to dear lady or dear, dear woman. So it's, it's a term of endearment anyways. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. In other words, um, I have, I'm, I'm not like doing this stuff publicly yet. I've, maybe I've been doing some of this behind the scenes, but like this is not my coming out moment for this. I, I came to save the world, not weddings. Do you know what I mean? Um, you're involving me in this and I, I don't want to, be a part of it. Verse five, she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. I love this. This is why I think it's strategic. I think she's very strategic here because she knows, yeah, 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 savior of the world, whatever. You still take lessons from your mom. You still take things from your mom. Like when I say you're going to be involved in something, you know, you can play around and do whatever, but we know who wears the pants in this family and you're going to do whatever it is that I tell you. So she turns to them and says, do whatever he tells you to do. Now, uh, we know kind of the rest of the story. We'll read a little, a little bit more about it. But what is John doing? Why does he start here? This is an interesting miracle to begin with. If you were kind of to try and paint a picture of like this magnanimous personality of Jesus, and when you're, when you're literally healing people who have never walked or healing people who are known to be blind and now they can see, those feel like... Um, unquestionable, insurmountable odds. Like if you're gonna do that, like what else, what can't you do? Uh, but in this one, that he's about to illustrate the story of water being turned into wine, but confined to these, these uh, clay vases like, where it's kind of hidden and not many people know about it. It wasn't like Jesus stood up and be like, attention, everyone, can I have your attention? Ding, 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 ding. Um, we are clearly we're out of wine and the dancing is, is now getting very atrocious. I need to do something about this. Um, so I'm gonna, on the count of three, uh, abracadabra, very, very public. He doesn't do any of that. It's, it's very private. In fact, we're gonna find out very few people knew exactly what took place. Jesus 
turns, or, or, or verse six, excuse me. Nearby stood six stone wood or water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, these would be part of kind of the ceremonial law for them. This would be part of the process. This would be, uh, when you read the Old Testament, you read Leviticus and Numbers, there would be like, God chooses Israel. He gives them all these certain parameters. You're gonna do this, you're gonna do this. And if this happens, you do this. And if this happens, you do this. And you wash your feet and you, you, you know, all of these. These would be set in by the door, but they're not filled with water as we're gonna find out. They're just empty. They're just a shell of it. They're symbolic. They're icons of every Jewish person. If you were a good Jewish person, this is what you had by your front door to be like, we're still in covenant with a God who chose us. Now there's been some, you know, it feels like he's been absent for hundreds of years, but there's, we're still going through the motions of this. We're trying to project some sort of image that we still in relationship. When I grew up, my mom had this old sewing machine that was in our living room until I was about 30 years old. I didn't live with my parents until I was 30, just to be clear, but it was there until about 30. It never ran once and it never had any thread in it, but she loved the look of like, I'm a homemaker and I fix things and sew things. And if you got a tear in your jeans, we don't just replace, we fix and we repair because that's kind of our generation. It never ran, it never did anything, but for whatever reason, it was important for her to have this in, in the living room and we would joke about it all the time. This is what's going on here. We have these things in place. It's symbolic for us of our religion and the tradition that we come from, but it's not being used. Jesus intentionally, I think, and John recognizes this and probably didn't recognize it in the moment, but recognizes. He goes, he takes empty traditional iconic objects and he's about to do something with them. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the wedding tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He grabs these empty jars. He fills them with water. He's about to challenge, he's, he's about to make a statement, by the way, I think, about the old covenant and the introduction of something new. F.F. Bruce is a commentator who writes some great commentaries about uh, the Bible. And here's his quote on this kind of story taking place in John. The water provided for purification as laid down by Jewish law and custom. It stands, it's an icon for the whole ancient order of Jewish ceremony. It's part of the ceremonial way that we do things, which Christ was to replace with something new and something, not just new, something better. He takes this wine to these, this, this master and when he tastes it, his response is, this is even better than the first things that you had. Verse nine, he didn't realize where he had come from though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He, then he called the bridegroom aside. He said, everybody brings out the choice wine first and then Coors Light after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you have saved the best until now you've done it backwards. You had something that was good, but now you've created something that's even better. And John is writing this again, probably 40, 50 years after this. And he goes, this is where it all started for me when I realized something unique was taking place with this person of Jesus. He took something that was symbolic and iconic of the old ceremonial law and he changed it to say, you know what? That was great, but something is coming that's new and it's fresh. And by the way, it's even, it's even better. God wants to do something new. God did something Old God did had an old covenant with a nation as he rescued them from Israel and showed them what it could be like to be in a relationship with the heavenly father. And now a new covenant is being established. And he's like, listen, the water to wine thing, that's cool. But like, that's just, that's a small thing in comparison to the announcement that he's making here, that he's coming out and he's being public with this new covenant that's being made, that is being offered. And it's, and it's better and it's better. 
This was more than a miracle. It was a sign. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana and Galilee was the first of the signs. Is it a miracle or was it a sign? Jesus, or Paul, or excuse me, John would say this was a sign through which he revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. It has gone from they were following him around as a rabbi as he took the Old Testament law, expounded it, and believed him in what he said about the law. And now something has taken place where he's establishing a new covenant and their, their beliefs has shifted to something believed him when he talked about things versus they begin to believe in him. Something has taken place now. We begin to believe. He's documenting their belief. And by the way, this belief would ebb and flow. It would be something for a while they would believe and they wouldn't believe and then they'd believe again. They'd be like, then like people would leave. He, he would be talking about like, um, like his in, impending death and, and then like crowds would leave and they'd be like, do we believe? I don't even know if we believe. And then they go on top of a mountaintop and he'd ask him, you know, who, who do people say that I am? Well, we, we believe you're the Jesus, the son, Messiah, all this kind of stuff. We'd believe they'd go through all of these different ebbs and flows. And John would say, this is the point at which we began to believe because he gave us a reason to believe. And yeah, it's, it wasn't perfect. There would come times where it would come and go, just like for all of us, it comes and goes, right? You've had times in your life where you've really believed something. You've gone, you like went to church a whole bunch and you felt really good about it. And then the Seahawks had like four 10 o'clock games. And you're like, you know what? I mean, like I can catch it online or like a podcast or something. But you say that and you didn't, and that's fine. And then you, and then you see me at some like wedding or some restaurant or something like that. And you're like, I've been meaning to get back into church. Uh, so great to see you. We were just talking about, like, weren't we just talking about that? We were just talking about this. Going back to church. And yeah, said, how's it been going? How's our church going? Using our church, you haven't been here in four years. That's fine, but I'm cool with it. I, I, I resolve to never play the guilt card in you. I promise you, I'm, I'm always just genuinely glad to see you. And it's just funny that people go through ebbs and things in their faith. And by the way, it's not new. It's not, well, the problem is your smartphones and the problem is the internet and the problem is, you know, 21st century modern day America. No, no, no. This was a continual problem. They would, the disciples themselves, the people who were there physically to watch them with their own set of eyes, Jesus do all of these things, go through this. And yet Jesus, or John has this, this idea of when he writes this down, he goes, I, we begin to believe in that moment. Now it would have ups and downs, but in that moment we had, we believed in him. Why did you believe in him? Because we saw something. There was something to go off of. It wasn't Jesus gathering us together and saying, now guys, I'm gonna tell you something crazy. I'm the son of God. I know there's not a lot of proof to go on it, but I just need you to believe in me. I need you to try real hard and have real good faith and hope that I am what I say that I am. John would say, listen, it was not based on hope. It was not based on trying harder. We began to see some things that we cannot deny. Our belief in who he was, was based on things that we saw. So if you've ever been a part of a religious environment that says you gotta try harder, you gotta do this, you gotta try, 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 will yourself to believe this kind of thing, John would say, that's pretty foreign to me. Let me tell you how we came to faith, how his disciples came to faith. We saw some things <clears throat> that we cannot deny. To the point, to the extreme, that John kicks off his entire story about this with this incredible phrase, the word became flesh. This is John chapter one. This is how he begins his letter. And the word here, the, the word, the reason it's capitalized is because what he's trying to say here is the word, the Greek that he uses, the logos, which for them was like that thing that's out there, that divine being, God 
because there's no way to really define what God is, like this uh, the eternal presence, the essence of core of being, whatever weird new agey thing you wanna say about a belief of something outside of this. That thing became flesh, tangible, hear, see, touch, feel, and made his dwelling among us. We believe God made himself known through Jesus. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. We are not hoping he's the father. We're not hoping he's divine. We believe that he is. Why? Because we saw him live out his life in a fullness of grace and truth that is undeniable. He had so much incredible grace for a woman caught in adultery, for people who come from all kinds of sinful lifestyles, he would operate in grace. And when he would speak truth to people who were broken, who knew themselves to be sinners and tax collectors and all the kind of things, the broken of society, he would have versions of truth and they were not turned off by his versions of truth. They would be like, yeah, we're pretty jacked up. We need help. We, when you speak the truth with the fullness of grace and truth, he did it in such a way that we cannot deny any longer. We are not hoping anything. We believe this because we saw it. We have something to go <coughs> off of. How can you say such a thing? How can you make such a broad statement about this Jesus character? His response would be, would be because of something that I saw. So you, just so we're clear, you have not been required nor expected nor even invited to believe simply in belief. Listen, when, if you come to Eastlake and if Eastlake begins to be home, I'm telling you what you'll get from, from me, from all of whatever base camp starting point that you go through, it is not a gonna try harder, guys. You're gonna try harder. You're gonna, you, you're gonna get to the spot where you don't have to rely on God. Just this once, would you do something for me? Would you do something that would like, I, I, just, wanna, I, I just want a miracle. I want something to kind of like, you know, give me this. It's, it's, it's we look at this story and we say, it's not based on, putting hope in something that's not firm, that, that we can't have anything to go off of. It is way better than that. We are gonna look at John's description of why he came to believe. And yes, there were ebbs and flows, <clears throat> but there was things that we could tangibly hold on to. And it shaped the way that we believe. So for us, if you'll continue with me for the next couple of weeks, we no longer have to rely on just this once, just this once. Close my eyes, fix this, do this, just this once. We have more firm ground than that to go off of. You do not need to rely on simply hope that outside of the walls of this church just doesn't work out in real life. But a belief and a faith anchored to something far more firm than that. Let's pray. Father, our prayer, uh, regardless of kind of where we came from and background of faith, is uh, that you would, for those of us who have been kind of, you know, part of the whole Christian thing for a while, um, that we would begin to evaluate and look at the foundation of our faith. Maybe it's just become like this routine rhythm thing that we come and we do, and it's fine. Um, but then sometimes the crisis can hit, and and then we begin to question and we begin to go, we have a what about, what about this? And nobody ever really talked us into it. So it's really easy for us to be talked out of it. For those of us maybe who have zero background of this and we've always been skeptical and we've always been kind of like the only offer, the only presentation of faith and religion that has ever been presented to us is one of this like real flimsy hope stuff that just doesn't seem to work out in real life. And it's weird that 
you know, we're expected to kind of bring that into the walls of a church when we don't do it anywhere else in our life. I pray that you would begin to open up the doors uh, for us to take a little bit of a reevaluation point in our life, to look through why John believed, and maybe that'll inspire us to take more seriously uh, the challenge that we have to believe in what you say about us and what is required of us to have faith in you, not about you, about what you said, but in you. So give us the wisdom to know what that looks like for us in our own individual circumstances and the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.